Well, welcome once again. If you're new uh, to us this week, uh, we should let you know that we are doing a series. We are three quarters of the way through a series uh, on Advents or passages pertaining to Christ's Advent in the Pentateuch, the Torah, the most revered books of the Hebrew Bible for uh, Jews. And we began um, a few weeks ago by looking at the promise in Genesis, which came amidst uh, the sin of Adam and Eve, when it was promised that the offspring of Eve would, uh, would rise up and would crush the head of the serpent who embodies evil and who represents the devil. And yet that devil figure would also uh, harm the seed of the, the, um, the offspring of Eve. And we noticed a theme pertaining to the seed, and we're going to see it again tonight. Um, we saw the seed again referred to in the second passage that we looked at last week, which actually consisted of two passages again, Genesis chapter 12, the call of Abraham, and then the testing of Abraham, where he was asked to offer um, his son as a sacrifice, and he proved to be obedient. And after that occasion, the promise was again given that there would be a seed who would be a medium by which blessing came to all the peoples of the earth, Jew and Gentile alike. And some other promises came with it, like uh, land and um, prosperity for um, the chosen one from Abraham's line. And today we come to two more passages. Genesis 49, where we hear a prophecy from one of the best known Old Testament saints, Jacob. And then we hear a prophecy from one of the most notorious, dubious characters in the ancient Near East, Balaam. So um, what I have titled as our sermon thought today is, um, saint and sinner alike speak the same word from God. One from the tribe of Judah will reign. And we'll look in turn at uh, the prophecy of the saint, and then we'll look at the prophecy of the uh, suspicious or kind of shady character. And we'll find out why I think um, he's a rather shady character in due course. Many of you have been watching the World Cup over the past few weeks. I don't know how many teams we started with, but there were a whole lot. And as time has gone on, the whole world has watched while the focus has narrowed. We had umpteen countries beginning, including Canada, which was a real rarity. I think it had not been since 1986 that we had a Canadian team in the World Cup. And by and by, the focus has become more and more narrow to the point where, as of last check anyway, there are what? Four teams. And uh, I'm going to name three and invite somebody else to name the fourth. We get Croatia. France, Morocco, and who is still left? Pardon me? Argentina. All right, good. And the favorite Brazilians are left out. So we'll know in a few weeks um, who the spotlight is to shine on. And in a similar way, in our preaching series, we began by knowing that some offspring of Eve would end up having the prize of God's agent who would reign over the whole world and bring blessing to the world. And week by week, the focus has narrowed. And last week, it narrowed significantly to the point where we saw that it would be an offspring of Abram. So we've gone from somebody in the world to somebody from the offspring of Shem, which is related to the word for Semite. 
And this week, we find out that there are, in a sense, two contenders, Jacob and Joseph. Because in the blessing of Jacob, in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob gives particular attention to two of his sons. And they come at the end of his blessings. And in verses 8 to 12, there is a description of Judah, who, we later learn, wins out. But then there follows also a blessing upon Joseph. Joseph, as we know, was Jacob's favorite. In the modern Western world, you're not allowed to have favorite kids. And if you do, um, you do well not to mention that. But in the ancient world and in many other cultures, people make no bones about so-and-so being my favorite. And Joseph was Jacob's favorite. And Judah was not even the firstborn. Judah was, in fact, the fourthborn son of Leah and Jacob. But the first three who issued from the um, womb of Leah were disqualified on the basis of their character. So Judah ends up being a rather surprised character. And so as of this week, we learn that there's really um, one kind of uh, maybe country that is still represented. And at that point, the analogy of FIFA breaks down because uh, we go to, from one individual, namely Judah, but next week we're going to find out who it is um, within Judah, or at least in three weeks we'll know, uh, who exactly it is that comes from Judah. So look with me, if you will, at, first of all, Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 to 12. And I suggest, invite you to follow the translation that I have, um, have rendered on the, the, first, the first page because it contains some of the judgments that will spare me explaining. First of all, we have the prediction of Judah's supremacy. O Judah, as for you, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the nape of your foes. Your father's sons shall bow low to you. Well, this is a little bit of a surprise if you think about it. When it says, your father's sons shall bow low to you, who was it who predicted earlier in Genesis, actually had a dream to the effect that people would bow down to him? That, in fact, was Joseph. And if we look earlier in the book of Genesis to this point, we're led to expect that Joseph is going to be the one whose tribe prevails. Uh, but here we have a reversal, and that's not surprising if you read the book of Genesis carefully and closely, because there are a lot of reversals. The firstborn is rarely the one who was chosen. And so now words that you might have expected to be attributed to Joseph are attributed instead to Judah. O Judah, as for you, here's the first time since Reuben was mentioned that Jacob speaks to the individual in the second person. This is a clue that these two people, Judah and Joseph, are important ones to watch. And then surprisingly, Judah is told, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the nape of your foes, the nape being the back of the neck. I didn't know that word and thought you might not know it either, so I put it in a footnote. So your hand shall be on the back of the neck of your foes. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. So we learn two things from verse eight. First of all, that Judah is going to be the object of praise on the part of the other tribes of Israel, uh, which later became kind of provinces in a country, as it were. Um, the country didn't consist of provinces. It consisted of tribal allotments. And the capital um, and the, the prime minister, as it were, is the offspring of Judah. So as for you, your brothers shall praise you. 
Now, already at the beginning of verse 8, we get an indication that this is a particularly special individual. There's only one other place in the Old Testament where someone other than the offspring of the tribe of Judah is the object of praise. Everywhere else, God is the object of praise. But here, and in two other passages where the, the focus narrows down to David, who is of the offspring of Judah, praise is attributed to him. Probably not for his own character, David was no uh, saint, but because God had chosen to mediate his blessing through this offspring of Judah, who was David. So David and Judah, and later on David, and ultimately Jesus, is going to be the one who receives praise from his fellow Israelites, and then from, in turn, all of the peoples of the world. So the Judahite connection, the tribal connection, is in lines one to three. As for you, your brothers shall praise you, your father's sons shall bow down to you. But then in line two, your hand shall be on the nape of your neck. Uh, sometimes if my dog is being uh, a little nasty, uh, he'll try to dart away. And if you're lucky, you can just grab the back of his throat and hold him back and kind of drag him. Or maybe even the necklace or the, uh, the, the collar that he's wearing. Um, a time or two, I might even be able to grab his tail. And if I get a hold of his tail, then I can kind of pull him back and rein him in. Jacob says of Judah, your hand shall be on the back of the neck of your foes. And that's a sign of dominance. It's a sign of control. It's a sign of superiority. And so here we're told that someone special is going to arise from the tribe of Judah who is going to have power over his enemies and whose fellow tribesmen will recognize him as the one who is supreme. Secondly, Judah is compared to a lion. The second segment from our prophecy on the part of Saint Jacob is that Judah is a lion. And there are three different words for lion that are used here. First of all, he is a lion cub. Judah is a lion cub. On prey, my son, you have grown. So the little lion cub uh, goes out, it learns to find food, and it eats its prey, and it grows up. And then there's a second word for lion in the third line. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. This isn't to crouch and lie down as if to pounce on somebody, but it's to crouch and lie down once you've secured your prey and you go back to your cave and you want to have lunch and just digest your meal. And so there's a picture then of a grown lion who is lying down in his cave with his prey and uh, woe betide anybody that tries to take the prey out of his hand. It's kind of a morbid equivalent or a violent equivalent to what Jesus says later that no one shall take one of his little ones out of his hand. If you're in the hand of the son of Judah, you are in good hands. And then third and finally, like a lioness. Uh, here's a gender balance in that this is a lioness. Who dares to stir him? One scholar, and I'm tempted to agree with him, is inclined to think that this is sort of uh, an emergence of Judah. Judah began off, began as this little cub, and then through history grew greater and greater to the point where um, Judah then becomes a, a fully mature lioness who is unrivaled in all of the world. We've seen uh, before, and you're no doubt seeing it now implicitly, that we're doing two things at once. Here we are reading an Old Testament text that was written hundreds of years before Jesus came. 
And we're reading about somebody called Judah who lived more than a thousand years uh, before Jesus. But for the Christian, it's easy to see the connection between Judah and Jesus. There's even a similarity in that the name of the Lord is in both of their names. And of course, Judah uh, is the tribe from which King David came. And King David was given a more specific promise that his rule would not end. And Jesus, uh, who is from the line of Judah via his relationship uh, with his parents, a unique one, is from the time of Judah. So what we see predicted here of Judah is said of Jesus. Let me see if I can just offer an illustration that I found helpful, because as we come to Christmas, we're going to be reading passages where uh, you kind of lock in, okay, we've got the virgin birth, but then there's something about a warrior's boot in there, and you kind of think, warrior's boot, what are we doing? And it's characteristic of Old Testament prophecy that it outlines the future with reference to the present. And the future and the present are kind of brought together in a way that's not easy to separate. And it's only with the benefit of time that you can begin to see the separation. Okay, this part pertains to one age, that part pertains to another age. From our home in Calgary, Alberta, we were able to see the Rocky Mountains about an hour to the west. And if you looked at the Rocky Mountains at the west, you would think that there was one range, one mountain range. If it was a cloudy and kind of a dull day, you'd sort of say, well, yeah, there are the Rockies. No big deal. They all kind of look flat. But when the sun rose at a certain position, the sun would shine on the foothills in front of certain other mountains. And you would realize that the mountains are actually kind of um, in rows, like you are sitting in a row. And you realize, oh, that's Moose Mountain, which is only 50 miles away. And there's um, Mount Assiniboine, which is another 100 miles away. So at times when we're reading prophecy in the Old Testament, we read things that pertain to the near horizon, and we read things that pertain to the more far horizon. And I have to say, if you're tempted to associate the dramatic and the violent and the um, triumphalist with the near horizon only in the time of King David, I need to remind you that Jesus says that when he comes again in the second coming, it will not be an occasion when he comes in gentleness and grace. It's a time when he will come and settle the score, and it will not be a pretty picture. And we're told that his coming comes so quickly that there won't be time to decide. So as we move towards the Christmas season, it's easy, as we think about Advent and Christmas, to think, oh yes, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, he comes as the champion of grace. But we're also to think of the second coming. When? Um, Evil will be destroyed. And you say, well, hallelujah, evil's destroyed. But think, that's not a pretty picture because destruction involves just that, destruction. Now we come to verse 10, which is really the uh, piece de resistance. Someone has described verse 10 as really the centerpiece. And it focuses on the rulership of someone from Judah. So Jacob writes at the end of his life of this young man, Judah, who is living um, in, um, uh, in um, the ancient Near East, long before there's even such a, a, a country as Israel, of Israel, never shall the scepter depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of peoples is his. The scepter and the staff are symbols of authority, 
and power. The scepter actually was something that Egyptian kings were often portrayed holding, and it was this uh, symbol of their kingship, and uh, it had a mace on the head of it. And you actually saw some of the kings, or you can see in certain depictions, some of the kings smashing the skulls of their enemies and demonstrating their authority and their superiority by force. So there's a picture here of the future that's to come for Judah. And in the book of Judges, Judah is going to play a role in taking the land, capturing the promised land. And during the ministry of Jesus, although his ministry was one of peace, at the same time it was one where he was vanquishing his foes. He had the devil um, tied in knots in his temptation. And even as he was submitting to the authority of those foreign rulers, he was in charge and he was accomplishing salvation in his meek, mild, and submissive way. And when he comes again, he presently being at the right hand of the Father and sitting on the throne of heaven as the one who rules eternally in the line of Judah, when he comes again, he will come with force. So the ruler's staff will not depart between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come. And I've taken the liberty of putting he in capitals. This is the benefit of foresight because I know and believe that he is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And so already there's a focus on a particular individual, not just the line of Judah, not just a series of kings, but a specific individual who is going to receive that mace and that scepter and own it forever. On the near horizon, it's David. But towards the end of his life, God comes to David and says, I am going to uh, make sure that there is always someone from your line who will reign. And it takes an eternal being to reign from eternity. I'd like us just to think about this for a minute. Think of who we're talking about. This guy named Judah. Uh, some old patriarchs, one of 12 children. What is the likelihood that thousands of years later that name would even be known? Uh, do we talk about Moabites today? Do we talk about Ammonites today? Uh, do we talk about Babylonians today? Do we talk about the Mitanni Empire today? Do we talk about Hittites today? No, all of those other kingdoms and all of those other rulers of kingdoms have gone by and by. But the least likely that you could imagine, someone who comes from the line of Judah, the Jews, who were without a country for hundreds and hundreds of years are still a byword. Every time we say the word Jew, that comes from the word Judah. And even after the Babylonian exile, when the uh, Israelites returned under Persian rule, the territory was called Yehud. That was the name it was, and that's the name of Judah. So it really is a remarkable thing that over the course of hundreds and hundreds of years, Throughout a very tumultuous history, Israel kind of being located between a lion to the south, Egypt, and a tiger to the north, Mesopotamia, that she didn't get destroyed in this alley cat fight between the tiger and the lion. But in fact, this little alley cat in the middle of those rises to be the lion of the tribe of Judah, who sits on the throne and reigns forever. If you're looking and interested in evidence for the existence of God, this is a pretty good place to find it. Karl Barth believed that this is one of the strongest evidences for the existence of God, that we would even be talking about this today. In a minute, we're going to talk about another inscription that was discovered in 1967, and that mentions Balaam for the first time in thousands of years.
But uh, Balaam took a, a several thousand year hiatus when we've been talking about Judah from the very time of the writing of this passage. So then we come to Judah's opulence, uh, opulence being another word for wealth. And I'll just let you know that I'm going to spend less time with the prophecy of the sinner than I am with the saint, because it says much the same thing. So we're further along than you might think. Here is the imagery of the prosperity of the kingdom, and also presumably the welfare of the line, one who's in the line of Judah. It says he. Um, there's, there's continuity between the third paragraph and the fourth. And we're not told who the subject is in verse 11, but if you look back for the preceding subject, it is this one to whom kingship shall belong and to whom the obedience of peoples shall belong. And it says he tethers his donkey to the vine, his ass is full to a choice vine. This is the equivalent of um, tying your horse to an apple tree. Uh, you know what the horse is going to do if you tie him to an apple tree, right? The horse is going to reach and he's going to eat all of those apples that you could sell at the market for, I mean, nowadays, like $2.79 a pound, right? I mean, gone to the days when you can even get apples for less than $1.79 a pound. You have to look pretty hard. And so there's an imagery here of Judah being comfortable and in a, in a prosperous world. And on the near horizon, I think we clearly have in this last verse, the kingdom of Solomon, which was one of the most... Um, lavish kingdoms in the ancient Near East. The kingdom of Solomon was fabulously wealthy. And uh, this, this paragraph reflects that kingdom very well. It says he tethers his donkey to the vine. The equivalent of, um, to use a rather um, profane example, it would be sort of like lighting your cigarette with a $10 bill. Um, it, it, it's just means you, you, you've just got more money and, and, and more prosperous than you know what to do with. You're letting your donkey consume the vine. And then it says he washes his garments in wine, his robe in the blood of grapes. There are two possible imageries here. Um, one, uh, I would like to quote from a passage that I hope I can find. I do this in every sermon, don't I? I just decide, well, here I am talking, I should actually be quoting some of the things that I, um, that I have in the, uh, in, the, in the passage. Yeah, it's on page six, uh, section A. keep you awake. You're going to have to look through some pages and find something. <gasps> what? I mean, you got to find a page? Ooh, okay. A guy named George Bush, not that George Bush, but somebody who lived in the 19th century and was a, a famous classical commentator on Genesis, wrote, so luxuriant should be the growth of vines in his allotment, he's going back a little bit earlier in the section, that it should not be unusual for men to bind their young asses to them as they do in other countries to any kind of barren timber, nor when they would heed their eating, their tender shoots and leaves, any more than if they were grass. And not only so, wine was to be produced in such rich abundance that the people might wash their garments in wine and their clothes in the blood of grapes as if it had been so much water. Uh, this would be like rinsing your lettuce with vodka or something. It's, uh, it's, 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 um, it's very opulent. Reminds me of a joke with all offense with, to those who don't like jokes and sermons and, and hopefully for the benefit of those who do. In the old days, I don't know when, but apparently women used to beautify themselves by taking a milk bath 
you would bathe yourself in milk. And that was supposed to be good for your skin, I presume. So there's a story told of the lady who phones the dairy and she said, I would like the dairy truck to come and to fill my bathtub with milk. And the person at the dairy said, I can take your order. And he said, would you like the milk pasteurized? And he said, no, just up to my chest. Pasteurized up to my chest, right? So that image comes when we actually get to verse 12. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than, than milk. So there's an image of opulence here and of prosperity. But I want us to notice that it can be spiritualized. And I think it's worth uh, noting ways in which it can be spiritualized. Look, for example, at what it says on page six under the literal interpretation. Viewing Christ as a grand burden of the prediction, it is, ex is it excessive spiritualizing interpretation? If we regard this high wrought language as applying to that he should bind by the cords of faith, hope and charity to the vine of the Jewish church, the people of the Gentiles here shadowed forth under the image of an ass's colt who had hitherto never been brought into subjection, even as the young ass upon which our Lord rode into Jerusalem, and which to some have thought not improbably that there was a prophetic allusion here, um, never before been subject to a reader. You remember in the triumphal entry, Jesus in Mark's gospel is told, we are told that Jesus instructed his disciples to untie a donkey as he was to ride into Jerusalem. And so here we have kind of Jesus, if you will, if there is a connection here, and many do see a connection here, but not all. Uh, but I think the, the, uh, the sort of the creative, intelligent, faithful Christian reader is right to see one, perhaps, is an untying of the donkey by Jesus. And an untying of the ashes full to the choice vine. And here Jesus, who could have had the option of wealth and opulence instead, comes to mount that donkey as is prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9. And he is to bathe his own garments in blood, in the blood of grapes. And he who deserved to have his eyes darker than wine from health and prosperity and his teeth whiter than milk was dashed and his teeth likely close to knocked out, if not entirely so. My friends, note well, the advent is not an invention of the church. This is a well-attested Jewish messianic prophecy that comes at the end of the book of Genesis. And it, uh, it, it foreshadows Joseph or Jake, Judah in a way that doesn't Joseph. Now, Joseph is there because Joseph's offspring were Ephraim and Manasseh. And Ephraim was the name of the northern kingdom and Judah was the name of the southern kingdom. Now we go from saint to sinner and look on page two at Balaam. Now, a little bit of background here to Balaam, for those of you who may not be familiar with this book of Numbers. The Israelites were wanting to make their way to the promised land and they wanted to pass through the area of Moab. And so the Israelites asked the king of Moab, look, we're, we're, we're not going to stay in your land. We just, we just need passage to go from A to B. Um, are we allowed, please, to cross through your land? And the king of Moab said no. And the king of Moab had actually heard of the success of the conquest of the Israelites. And the king of Moab was afraid. Balak was afraid of the Israelites. 
And so he did the mercenary thing. He did what Putin did with the Warner Group. He thought, I need a little help. I'm going to hire some extra manpower here. And so he hired a well-known local prophet, somebody who is known to be really good um, for cursing enemies and blessing your friends. And so Balak sent a whole lot of money to Balaam via his agents and said, Balaam, I want you to come and curse the Israelites. And this guy Balaam said, well, I don't know, I'll have to check it out. And he, he, uh, he meditated upon it and he came back and said, no can do. I don't think I can do that because I can only tell you what I hear. And for years there's been a debate among uh, students of the Bible about whether Balaam was a believer or whether Balaam was a pagan. Um, and um, as it has turned out, um, there's an inscription that was discovered in 1967 in the land of Jordan that indicates that he was clearly um, a, a sort of a prophetic gun for hire. And he was uh, the best that you could hire from all it could be told in order to curse one's enemies. So Balak thinks he's got the tiger by the tail. He's going to hire this Balaam guy who's going to come and pronounce curses against the Israelites. And Balaam's word is no less affirming of the line of Judah than that of Jacob. To make a long story short, Balaam comes and says, uh, I'll come, but you got to know, I can't just make this up. I got to do what I'm told. And as he's on his way, the God of Israel appears to Balaam and says, you may go if you speak my word. And uh, Balaam honors that. And so here we have a prophetic oracle that comes through the, the lips of a sinner and a saint. And um, if, you, if you turn uh, to um, the, well, I'll just, I'll just tell you about the inscription. I've written part of it on the, on, on the end towards page 10, but um, we now know as of 1967 that Balaam was a well-known ancient Near Eastern gun for hire in the prophecy department and that he was good and well-known for um, consulting uh, various spirits, mediums, gods, and then telling people in the morning what it was. And even in the prophecy that we have in Numbers, some of the names of God that are referring to God are a play on some of the pagan gods that Balaam invoked. And I think that the point is this, that God is so determined to bring Jesus into the world through the line of Judah that his prophecy is fulfilled from A to Z on the lips of Jacob, uh, a, a, a more prototypical saintly figure in the history of Israel you could not imagine, as well as on the lips of a gun for hire who some pagan king hired in order to curse Israel. And it all came undone and backfired on poor King Balak. So Balak pays his money and here's what Balaam says in his prophecy as he looks out over the Israelites who's he supposed, whom he's supposed to curse. Oracle of Balaam, son of Baor, oracle of the open-eyed man. He was probably in a trance. Oracle of one who hears what God says, of one who knows the knowledge of Elion, who sees the vision of Shaddai, who prostates but with eyes unveiled. And then he kind of lifts up his finger and he, he's, he's, he's supposed to look at the crowd and give a judgment about now, but instead God directs him to look into the future and he says, I see him but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will march forth from Jacob. A scepter will arise from Israel. It will smash both temples of Moab. 
the skull of the Shethites. We're not sure who the Shethites are. Presumably, it's another name for the people of Moab. So Balaam does the exact opposite. He says, I see this figure who one day is going to smash the temples of your country, Balak, and the skull of your citizens, Shethites. Oh, and by the way, if you want to know what's going to happen in the near horizon, Edom shall be dispossessed, so shall Seir. These are countries on the eastern side of the Jordan. But as for Israel, well, she does valiantly. She's going to win. He who is from Jacob shall have dominion. He shall destroy a remnant from the city. One of the features of Hebrew poetry, if you want to make a point, is you invoke both poles on the spectrum. I am the alpha and the omega. That means I'm not just the letter A and I'm the letter Z. I'm the letter A and I'm the letter Z and I'm everything in between. Here's a prophecy about Judah that predicts the coming of Jesus Christ and his eternal dynasty, his eternal rule as the one who now sits at the right hand of the Father on the throne that comes from somebody on the A, Jacob, whose credentials are impeccable, and somebody on the Z spectrum, this shady character named Balaam. You know, as I was refreshing my memory on this story this week, I remembered the story of Balaam's ass and how many people talk about, you know, well, if God can speak through the ass of Balaam's donkey, he can speak through you. I was tempted to say, well, God speaking through Balaam's ass isn't nearly as surprising as God speaking through Balaam. Look at this inscription, if you will, uh, on um, the, um, uh, the page, page nine. In 1967, a German archaeologist was digging at a place called Deir Allah, which might be associated with the place called Dibon. And he found some fragments that are written in a language somewhere between Aramaic and Canaanite. And to their surprise, this text that dates to about 800 BC says the misfortunes of Balaam, son of Beor. A divine seer was he. And then there's reference to a woeful divine vision that he receives one night. The gods came to him at night and he beheld in a vision in accordance with Ael's utterance. Ael was the chief god of the Canaanite pantheon. They said to Balaam, son of Beor, so will be done with not surviving. No one has seen the likes of what you have heard. And we aren't told what the vision was, but we read of Balaam reacting to a divine message which involved the destruction of the world. And look who he invokes in the last lines. He said, be seated and I will tell you what the Shaddai gods have planned and go see the acts of the gods. He mentions the gods Shagar and Ishtar as well as gods called the Shaddai gods. God pulled out the stops from both Jacob as well as a notorious pagan in order to point to the coming of Jesus whose advent we celebrate on this third Sunday of Advent. Praise be to him. Amen.